This is Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams, America's top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, both of them, one from California, one from Massachusetts. You can only guess what will happen next. Coast to Coast is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. Uh, we're glad you could listen today on our show, Coast to Coast. I'm Robert Ambrogi. I'm in Massachusetts representing the, the right coast in this program. And I'm out here on the left coast, Craig Williams from California. And this is the first of our Internet radio programs, which will be weekly shows. I write a blog called May It Please the Court. It's available at mayitpleasethecourt.com. Bob, why don't you tell them about your blog? I write a blog called Law Sites, in which I track uh, new and intriguing websites for lawyers. That's available at LegalLine, L-E-G-A-L-I-N-E.com. And I also write another blog about media law and uh, practice media, new media law uh, in Massachusetts. And you've also got a book. And I have a book, The Essential Guide to the Best and Worst Legal Sites on the Web, which you can get through... Law.com, lawcatalog.com. One of our sponsors. Just about anybody can listen to Coast to Coast. Uh, you can listen anytime on the Internet, and you can download the show to your podcast uh, machine, your iPod, MP3, Pocket PC, free here on the Legal Talk Network, and it's free in Apple's iTunes. Just look in the podcast library there for Legal Talk Network. You'll get all of our shows. You know, the producers made me say that, at least uh, Luann and Scott did. They wrote it down here, so I had to say it, Bob. Sorry about that. Why don't you tell us about our guests, Bob? I'd like to introduce our, our first guest today, uh, Michael S. Greco. Mike was born in Italy, came to the United States as a young child, and uh, it said that uh, he was influenced by the lawyers uh, in the community where he grew up, uh, who were leaders in that community. Mike went on to become a uh, a lawyer and a, an accomplished leader in his own right. Uh, and uh, that culminated early in August when he became president of the 400,000-member American Bar Association. Mike is a partner in the Boston office of Kirkpatrick and Lockhart Nicholson Graham. He spent 30 years as a partner in the former Boston firm Hill & Barlow. Uh, Mike, we are honored to have you as the inaugural guest on the inaugural broadcast of Coast to Coast. Well, I'm very pleased and honored to be your first guest. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, Mike, you've said that improving access to justice and civil matters will be a focus of your presidency. And you've uh, suggested that there be a, a right to counsel in serious civil matters for low-income and indigent people that parallels the right to counsel in criminal matters. Uh, on the criminal side, that right to counsel came about through a Supreme Court decision, Gideon v. Wainwright. How do you see this being implemented on the civil side, and where would the money come from to uh, cover the cost of this? Good, good question. I hope before we're finished today, I'll have a chance to talk about the all, all three initiatives that I have uh, set forth as priorities for the American Bar Association in the coming year. You, you've touched on the one in which I've appointed a task force called the ABA Task Force on Access to Justice. The other two I've appointed commissions, and one is the ABA Commission on a Renaissance of Idealism in the Legal Profession, which is really, if we come to talk about that, it's geared to the pro bono and public service mission of our profession and my efforts to enable more lawyers to do even more public service and pro bono work. And the other commission, uh, if we have time to talk about that one, is, uh, is one called the ABA uh, Commission on Civic Education 
and the separation of powers to educate uh, Americans about how our government works. But let's let me get to the to your question because uh, it's an important question, it's an important priority for the ABA. Just just a word or two about background of of this initiative. In this this initiative. I have been a lawyer for about 33, 34 years, and year after year, it, it is demonstrated that about 70 to 80 percent of the legal needs of America's poor go unmet, unaddressed, uh, unheeded. And it strikes me that in a, in a country with the wealth that we have, the resources that we have, that in a d- democracy, this should be unacceptable that we have 80% of the people uh, with uh, desperate legal needs and, and there's no one there to help. So the task force that I've appointed, which is being chaired by Howard H. Dana, Jr., he's an associate justice of the Maine uh, Supreme Judicial Court. He's also a former member of the Legal Services Corporation. And the makeup of this task force is, is uh, wonderful. It, these are leading lawyers and judges and legislators from around the country who are uh, finally going to put their shoulder to this problem of why is it that year after year we have so many people whose needs are unaddressed. Now, Bob, you referred to the Gideon versus Wainwright decision, 1962. The U.S. Supreme Court held that before uh, uh, an indigent person in this country uh, is imprisoned or or put to death in a capital case, that that individual has a constitutional right to counsel. Imprisonment, loss of liberty, uh, carries with it under our Constitution an obligation on the part of society to provide counsel so that that individual gets due process and a fair trial and a fair hearing of the charges brought against him. This is Craig. I was going to just ask you a quick question about that because it raises the issue of how this is going to get paid for. I mean, in criminal matters, the government pays for indigent counsel. Um, what type of funding do you anticipate for the civil counsel program you're advocating? Right. Well, I was I was going to get to that. Uh, I'm trying to set the table in terms of, of the, the pressing need, and, and I was going to make a point and then move on. The point is that those who believe uh, rightly that the Constitution should provide that right for indigents who are facing imprisonment behind bars, there are many people in this country who now understand that imprisonment can be of another kind, not just behind bars, but imprisonment in poverty, imprisonment in discrimination. And and those are just as uh, damaging and serious in many instances. The question is how to pay for this. Well, in a country like America, where we have uh, priorities at the moment of spending, uh, my suggestion has been to this task force that the task force consider uh, how it is that we can fund that such a right, if it makes sense to, to find such a right constitutionally. I think it would involve a reorga- reordering of priorities in this country. I think it would uh, mean that we look at uh, the way uh, society right now is spending its money, uh, and I'm not being critical of the way we're doing it, but I can tell you that uh, when a country like uh, England or France or Germany are able to devote 17 times 
more than the United States in uh, addressing the civil needs of the poor in those countries, I say we can do better than we're doing right now. In fact, we ought to be doing better than those three countries I just mentioned because we have resources that are more vast than those countries. How do they do that, Mike? Are they uh, taxing lawyers or are they um, funding it through law schools and law students and legal clinic programs or is it, a, is it done through a tax on the legal system in some manner? Uh, no to all of the, the things that you've just mentioned. Uh, I have not heard of any of those uh, models. Uh, in fact, in this country, uh, lawyers are magnificent in the, in the thousands and tens of thousands of hours that are volunteered on behalf of the poor of this country. And we have a wonderful uh, uh, legal a network of legal aid offices that are funded by the, the Legal Services Corporation. There's the problem. The Legal Services Corporation gets funding from Congress. Congress, from the time the Legal Services Corporation was created, during the President Nixon administration in 1974, the funding for legal services by Congress has been woefully inadequate. The high mark was 400 some million. This year was 330 million. It's never been more than about 330 million in the last number of years. That's a drop in the bucket. So rather than taxing lawyers or law, law students or law schools or law firms, who are already doing uh, incredible work, this is a social issue. This is a society-wide issue. This right, if it's found, has to be funded the same way that the constitutional right in Gideon versus Wainwright was, was funded. Society has to make it a priority. And I'm not suggesting that every legal problem of every poor person is to be funded in this way. I'm, what I am suggesting is that there are three areas of, of problems that are so cataclysmic in any of our lives, especially for a poor person, that, we, that counsel is highly, highly necessary. And those are the, the family. If, if, someone, if a young mother's uh, children are about to be taken away from her, she needs counsel. Uh, so the integrity of the family is one area. Secondly is home. If someone's about to be evicted from his or her home, uh, and facing that nightmare, that kind of a problem in, involving the integrity of one's shelter requires counsel. And third, health. There are so many benefits that people have from Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and th they are so confusing, these regulations. The Chief Justice of a, of a state Supreme Court told me that uh, the mother, 85 years old, got forms from Medicare, couldn't understand them, the Chief Justice looked at them and said, I don't understand them. So those three areas, family, home, and uh, health, those are the areas that I think counsel ought to be recognized as being uh, extremely necessary for poor people who, who don't know how to navigate our legal system. Mike, I wanted to ask you about uh, the, uh, I, I guess as I put it, the, the relevance of the ABA to, to solo and small firm lawyers. During the uh, ABA annual meeting, uh, I saw a couple of, of posts to law-related blogs that, that questioned the, the, the relevance of the ABA to solo and small firm lawyers, suggesting that uh, ABA dues are expensive, meetings are expensive to attend, and the focus of the ABA often is on the sort of big-picture issues rather than on the bread-and-butter day-to-day issues that uh, small-town lawyers face. 
Uh, and I know lawyers have uh, competing uh, 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 places to spend their dues money. Uh, you're a former president of the Mass Bar Association. You know that uh, a lot of lawyers are, are members of that association, of local associations, of special bar associations. Uh, I wonder what what do you see as the I guess the ROI for uh, small firm lawyers in in membership in the ABA? Well, I cannot imagine an association more relevant to the needs of uh, solo and small firm lawyers in America than the American Bar Association. As president of the ABA this year, I'm making a commitment to solo and small firm practitioners. This is the fastest growing segment of lawyers in America. More than 80% of America's lawyers are solo and small firm uh, lawyers. And so the ABA, uh, while we have been doing a lot of support through our ABA general practice uh, solo and small firm section, we are, we've now changed the form. It's now a division. And what that means is that it'll now be a portal. Someone who, a solo or small firm lawyer who joins the ABA and the general practice and solo f- uh, firm division will have access to two dozen substantive law sections, all the other sections. Uh, solo and small firm lawyers practice in, in various settings, and so they have to have access to the best available information from all of our sections. The, uh, the ABA, through this division this year, it will provide uh, resources such as the following. Advice on building and managing one's law practice. Uh, access to uh, an incredible array of publications and electronic information to help keep skills sharp and knowledge up to date, the best CLE programs in the country, opportunities to network with other lawyers and legal experts throughout the country on cases that uh, may be uh, troublesome to a solo lawyer, and a wide range of benefits, including health insurance, travel services, and discounts, I mean, those alone pay for the dues that it costs a, a lawyer to belong to the ABA and to this uh, division. So relevance, uh, extremely relevant. Uh, I just need to make sure that the word gets out in the coming months to the lawyers throughout the country about the, the benefits that, uh, that are just waiting at the ABA for uh, solo and small firm lawyers to take advantage of. That's great. That sounds like it's going to be a really good program. And, Mike, we'd like to thank you for participating in the inaugural show for the Legal Talk Network for Coast to Coast. We're going to take a quick break, and we come back with our special guest today from the Duke University School of Law, Erwin uh, Chemerinsky, to talk about the recent controversial Kelo versus New London decision. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks a lot, Mike. Check out J. Craig Williams' blog at mayofpleasethecourt.com. Likewise, Robert Ambrogi's blog at LegalLine.com for daily legal observations, perspective, and, of course, a healthy dose of wit and humor. Coast to Coast is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email.
Welcome back to Coast to Coast on the Legal Talk Network. Now, from the legal blogosphere, host Jake Craig Williams from the great state of California and Robert Ambrogi from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Well, Bob, uh, a couple of legal nuggets around the blogosphere have been, as we talked about a little bit earlier before the show came on, uh, the blog her convention earlier this summer and the continuing discussion about Grokster. That's right. I, I was uh, impressed with the uh, blog her convention. Unfortunately, it was on it was on the left coast, and I'm on the right coast, so I didn't make it there. But uh, for anybody interested in who wasn't able to make it, uh, I encourage you to check out the website of a blogger, J.D. Lassica. Uh, J.D., uh, was at the conference. He's a lawyer, journalist and, and blogger. He was at the conference, and he recorded video interviews with a number of the uh, participants and the organizers, including Lisa Stone, who's known to many legal bloggers uh, for her legal blog watch column on law.com. Uh, you can find that at uh, www.rmedia.org. Uh, and just search for Lassica, L-A-S-I-C-A, and you'll find his interviews there. Also had a website that you were going to talk about uh, regarding the Grokster decision that uh, still continues to have reverbera- reverberations. Well, there was a uh, it was on uh, it's actually on Law dot com today, uh, and uh, uh, today being the twenty ninth, uh, and uh, there was a roundtable sponsored by Internet Law and Strategy Newsletter, ALM publication, uh, featured a number of lawyers, uh, including myself, talking about the implications of the uh, Grokster decision. You could find that through law.com. Well, and we're really here to, to talk with Professor Erwin Chemerinsky from the Duke University School of Law, who used to be from uh, out here on the left coast, which is kind of nice to have him on both sides of the fence, uh, at uh, University of Southern California Law School. And we're going to talk about Suzette Kilo, her uh, little pink house in New London, Connecticut, along the waterfront on the Thames River near Fort Trumbull, where I used to go to school at the Coast Guard Academy, and uh, how the city of New London gave its power to uh, a private developer to build an expansion for uh, Pfizer. Uh, essentially, the United States Supreme Court uh, really brought along the issue of whether the government can take private property in order to give it to another private property because the new owner can produce more profit and more taxes from the city. Professor Chemerinsky, uh, how do you see the opinion? I don't think the Supreme Court changed the law at all. For over a half century, the Supreme Court has said that a taking is for public use so long as the government acts out of a reasonable belief that the taking will benefit the public. That's what the Supreme Court said here the government was acting out of a reasonable belief that the taking would create more than a thousand new jobs. We can disagree with the standard, we can disagree with the application, but I don't think the case changed the law. You can tell from Professor Chemerinsky that he's, uh, and I'm going to do this a little bit backwards, give him the introduction after his uh, first little topic. He's uh, frequently argues appellate court cases, including uh, before the United States Supreme Court and the Court of and many states' courts of appeals. He's a very prolific writer. He's written four books, uh, well over a hundred law review articles, which is just amazing to me since I haven't even written, written, listen to me, one, uh, written one of them. Uh, no wonder they won't let me write. And uh, he's appeared in journals such as the Harvard Law Review, Stanford Law Review, and before Duke, as I mentioned, he was at USC, where he was the Sidney Ermis Professor of Public Interest Law, Legal Ethics, and Political Science. Pretty much considered around the country to be the expert on constitutional law. You're so kind. Um, Thank you. 
<laughs> what do you think? There's been a big reaction in the country for from this decision, and legislators have been scrambling to try and make some changes in the law. Do you think that the Kelo decision is really going to result in some changes on the from the uh, legislative branch? No doubt. Some states like Delaware have already adopted statutes in response to Kelo prohibiting takings when the government's goal is economic development. There's a bill pending in Congress that would say that no federal money can be used to help the local government take property when it's be used for economic development purposes. So in this sense, I think the decision will have a real impact. What's ironic to me is it's a decision that doesn't change the rule the same rule the court's been following for over a half century. Professor, this is Bob Ambrogi. I'm wondering if, if that's the case, why do you think so many people have been disturbed by this decision? Why, If it's consistent with what the precedent has been, why, have, why has there been such an uproar over this case? I've been a law professor for 25 years now. I've never seen a case so widely misreported in the news as this one. Nowhere did the news media convey to the people that the test that the Supreme Court articulated it's the same one that they followed over and again for half century. There's a case in 1954 called Berman versus Parker that involved the District of Columbia wanting to take blighted property so as to have an economic development. And the Supreme Court allowed it, saying it's for public use because the government's acting out of the belief that it will benefit the public. Over 20 years ago, you might remember the case Hawaii versus Midkiff. The state of Hawaii was concerned that so much land was owned by a few families. It took title from them sought to distribute the land to others. The owners objected and said, this is the government playing Robin Hood, taking some private owners to give to others. The Supreme Court unanimously sided with Hawaii, saying it's for public use because the government's acting out of a reasonable belief that the taking will benefit the public. Well, is this the first case, though, in which they've clearly said that this kind of economic development uh, constitutes a public use, or was that the case in the D.C. opinion you just referred to and the other cases you mentioned? Well, in the D.C., it was the sense of blighted property, and the government was taking, hoping to put up a better development. But it was going from some private owners to give to other private owners. In Midkiff, it was going from some private owners to other private owners. Here, as you say, it's for economic development purposes, going from some private owners to others. I think that people reacted negatively to this because Fox News and others created the image that tomorrow the government's going to take your house to put up a Walmart. The government has no more power, no less power to do that than the day before Kilo was decided. There has been a bit of a backlash against two of the Supreme Court justices, people proposing to take their homes for public parks. But in fact, somebody was raising money in New Hampshire to take David Souter's house. Um, I think that's just publicity, and it's just a stunt. And again, we can say that the legislature should adopt laws preventing takings for economic development purposes. We should say that local governments should never use their eminent domain power this way. But the reality is this case simply followed the well-established principle the government can take private property for public use so long as it is a reasonable belief that the taking will benefit the public. Did it matter in this case that the uh, that the state of Connecticut had a statute which included economic development, defined economic development as a public use? I think it meant there wasn't a question under state law as to whether or not this was public use. It meant that the constitutional question, is this public use within the meaning of the Fifth Amendment, had to be reached by the Supreme Court. Did the problem with the general public and Fox News really come from the issue that private developers were going to be making a profit on this development before it was uh, 
going to be turned over to the city to, to increase taxes? Well, the fact that the city was going to be making a profit, if anything, heightens the fact that it is public use. The reality is the court's definition of public use for a half century has been tremendously deferential to the government. And the question here is, do we want the political process to put the limit on takings, or do we want the court to put the limit on takings by a narrow definition of public use? One of the ironies, it's usually been conservatives who said, courts should defer to legislatures. Courts should defer to legislatures about gay marriage or about abortion rights. Here, though, it's conservatives saying, don't defer to the political process. The court should step in and enforce a narrow definition of public use, limiting what the government can do. Well, the homeowners were charging that it was essentially corporate welfare. They were saying that what's happening is that we're not giving money to the city, we're giving money to the private developers. Do you see that as what's happening here? I don't think it was the government who was giving welfare to the private developers. I, mean, I think the government was paying the owners for their property, and then the government was encouraging private developers to come in to put this development to get a 1,000 more jobs. I was down giving a speech in Texas on Friday, and one of the federal judges said to me, you know, Texas has long used its eminent domain power to create oil and gas pipelines. Now, is that corporate welfare, or is that the government acting in the best interest of the citizens? I come back to the same question. Do we want the court to answer that question, or do we want the political process to answer that question? Professor, I wondered if I could ask you, uh, just to change the topic a, a little bit, you, you wrote a, a, an op-ed piece in USA Today recently in which you said that misleading and silly slogans about what judges do are dominating the debate about Supreme Court nominee John Roberts. What did you mean by that? From the time President Bush nominated John Roberts on Tuesday night, July 19th, through very recently, we've heard the president and Roberts reporters saying, Judges should apply the law, not make the law. We don't want judges legislating from the bench. In fact, John Roberts, in his papers to the Senate Judiciary Committee, said, I want to be a judge who applies the law, doesn't make the law. The reality is, judges always make the law. We may agree or disagree. Conservative and liberal judges alike do so. Take what's public use. Is public use including economic development purposes? The judge had to make the law about that. The Supreme Court had to decide it. Is there a right to abortion in the Constitution? Does the right to privacy include the right to engage in private consensual sexual activity? All of this is judges making the law. As you both know, every bit of contract law, tort law, property law in the states is all judge-made law. And so my point in this article wasn't to be against or for John Roberts, just to say slogans like judges should apply, not make the law, have no meaning. And all of us as lawyers know that it's misleading. Certainly. Well, Professor Chemerinsky, thank you very much for participating with us in our inaugural show here of Coast to Coast. We sincerely appreciate your time and, and uh, being on the show with us. Oh, I'm honored, and it's really fun to be on your inaugural show. I wish you a long, long stay, many shows to come, and I hope you'll call me again in the future. We will do that. Bye-bye. Well, Bob, that pretty much wraps it up for today's show. What are your uh, thoughts to end our inaugural show? Well, uh, I think that uh, it was interesting to hear what Professor Chemerinsky said, uh, and uh, it would be interesting to see uh, whether uh, whether uh, his words of wisdom come through in the Roberts nomination process, which we're going to be talking a little bit in our next broadcast next week. Uh, so I look forward to that. Well, certainly John Roberts is going to be dominating the news uh, as it moves forward, and we will be featuring some discussions about him in our next show. 
Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast with Jake Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Coast to Coast has been sponsored by Law.com. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.